Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to hello at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. As many of you know, we've spent some time in the book of Mark, haven't we? This is week 51, and we're done. Just shy of your rod celebrating. So May 17th last year, we started this journey in our first of six mini-series. It's called Make Room, talking about all the things that we needed to make room for that Jesus stood for and how John the Baptist started that and how that carried out at the beginning of Mark. And then we went into a mini-series called Pressure because the pressure was mounting from the local political and religious authorities on Christ and on the disciples as they made decisions to Take up the call to follow him. Then we went into our third series called Clarity, where Jesus was was teaching and addressing who he truly was, and he was deepening the knowledge of the disciples, as well as encountering more tensions and conflict from the religious authorities and bringing a lot more clarity as to who he was and what the kingdom of God meant for humanity. This really started in that series. And then series number four, the journey to Jerusalem. They pull up their roots or tent stakes, if you will, from Galilee, and they started heading into Jerusalem. And the crowds and the tensions followed, but we got to learn a lot more about Jesus' teaching, specifically with the disciples, which we would count ourselves as disciples of Jesus, um, through that series. And then here comes the king, series five. As Jesus enters into the gates of Jerusalem, we talked about how people were chanting, waving their palm fronds, hoping for this victorious, nationalistic, political leader to come in, and that wasn't what Jesus was. He was actually a sacrificial servant king, not some big-time nationalistic political military king, and found it fitting that what we have been going through in our society over the last year especially that we got to look at uh, what Jesus actually came to do and how he chose to affiliate himself. And that wasn't on some nationalistic or political slogan, but on being being a servant and suffering for others. And so that was the second to last series, which led us to this last one called Passion, where we've been taking a look at the ultimate expression of passion through Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. And that has led us to today. One thing I like to do, especially when we do an extensive look at a book through the Bible, is as we look back and have this kind of final message, uh, we're going to take a look at something called uh, The Bible Project. It's a video done by The Bible Project. You may also be familiar with it through the Read Scripture app. But it's this fascinating, brilliant summary of every book of the Bible. We're not going to go through every book today. We're going to look at Mark and the summary they do. It's illustrated. It's very well summarized and explained. And my prayer is that as we look at that together, it will help us prepare for this kind of final charge that we get out of the Gospels of, okay, Jesus is back. Now what? What does this mean for us? What does this mean for the world? And so we're going to take a moment, we're going to watch this video together, and then we are going to close off the series together. So if you would, give your attention and dim the lights to the screens. I'll be back with you shortly.
The Gospel according to Mark. It's one of the first accounts of the life of Jesus, and our earliest historical traditions link this book to a Christian scribe named Mark, or John Mark. He was a co-worker with Paul and a close partner with Peter. And in fact, an ancient church historian named Papias, he recalls that Mark had collected all of the eyewitness accounts and memories of Peter and then shaped them into this account. But Mark didn't just randomly throw the pieces together. He's carefully designed the story of Jesus. In the first line of the book, Mark makes this claim about Jesus. It's the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, what's interesting is that this is the only time Mark is going to tell you what he thinks. For the rest of the book, he's going to influence you by simply putting Jesus' actions and words in front of you and showing you how other people react to him. Now, Mark's designed the story of Jesus as a drama with three acts. The first one set in Galilee, the third one is set in Jerusalem, and the second act shows Jesus on the way from one place to the other. And each of the acts focuses on repeated theme. So in act one, everybody's blown away by Jesus and they're wondering, who is this Jesus? In act two, it's the disciples who are struggling to understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And then in act three, we watch the surprising paradox of how Jesus becomes the Messianic King. Let's just dive in and you'll see how it unfolds. After the opening line, Mark begins with a quotation from the ancient prophets Isaiah and Malachi, who said that God would send a messenger to Israel to prepare them for when God would show up himself to rescue his people and become their king. And Mark introduces John, the Baptist, as that messenger. And then right when you expect God to show up personally, Mark introduces Jesus. And as he comes onto the scene, the heavens open, God's spirit descends on Jesus, and God says, you are my beloved son. After this, Mark places in front of us a summary of Jesus' core message. He went about Galilee announcing the good news that God's kingdom has come near. Jesus is carrying forward the story from the Old Testament scriptures about God's rescue operation for his world. Through Jesus, God is restoring his reign over the world by confronting and defeating evil and its hold on people's lives, and then by inviting them to live under his reign by following Jesus. From here, Mark's given us a big block of stories showing us Jesus' power as he brings God's kingdom. He goes about healing people whose bodies are sick or broken or under the oppression of dark spiritual powers. And Jesus even does something that for Jewish people, only God has the right to do. He forgives people's sins. And Jesus' actions here produce lots of different responses. So some people follow him and become his disciples. Other people don't know what to think, and still others reject him completely, especially Israel's leaders who accuse him of blaspheming God and being empowered by evil. But Jesus isn't surprised by these responses. In fact, he draws attention to it. In chapter 4, Mark has collected many of Jesus' parables about the hidden, mysterious nature of God's kingdom. And Jesus says that his message is like seed falling on different types of soil. Some are receptive, some are not. Or it's like a mustard seed that's very tiny, it seems insignificant, but then it grows huge and surprises everyone. Jesus' point is that he really is the Messiah, bringing God's kingdom, but it doesn't look like what anybody expected. And this growing confusion about Jesus among the crowds is connected to a key idea Mark emphasizes at the end of Act 1, that even among Jesus' disciples there's confusion. Even they are struggling to grasp who Jesus really is, and that brings us to Act 2. It begins with a crucial conversation. Jesus takes the disciples aside and he asks, who do you all say that I am? And Peter speaks up saying, you're the Messiah. 
But it becomes clear that for Peter, this means that Jesus is a victorious military king from the line of David who will rescue Israel from the Romans. But for Jesus to be the Messiah means that he's the suffering servant king of Isaiah 53, who will bring God's rule by giving up his life in Jerusalem. And the disciples, they don't get it. They think following King Jesus is going to mean fame and status and importance, and Jesus makes it clear that following him is actually like dying, like carrying your own cross. It means rejecting violence and pride and selfishness and giving one's life out for others in acts of service and love. He has the same conversation with them two more times, and it all culminates in Jesus' important statement that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to become a servant and give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples still don't get it. They respond in confusion and fear. And so here in Act 2, Mark has placed another key story that echoes the book's introduction. Jesus takes three of his disciples up to a mountain, and he's suddenly transformed. He's radiating with light and glory, and a cloud envelops them. Now, this is just like the glory of the God of Israel that showed up long ago on Mount Sinai. And then the two prophets who stood in God's presence on Mount Sinai, Moses and Elijah, they appear next to Jesus as God announces again, this is my beloved son. Now, by placing this story in the middle of all these conversations in Act 2, Mark is making an astounding claim that Jesus, God's Son, is the physical embodiment of God's own glory. And in Jesus, the glorious God of Israel is going to become king by suffering and dying for the sins of his own people. It's a puzzling claim that confuses and scares the disciples as they leave the mountain. Which brings us to Act 3. Jesus makes a very public royal entry into Jerusalem for Passover. People are hailing him as the Messiah. Then he enters into the temple courtyard and he asserts his royal authority by running out the thieves and crooks and stopping the sacrificial system. Then this kicks off a whole week of Jesus debating and confronting the leaders of Israel, condemning their hypocrisy, and so they set in motion a plan to have him killed. And Jesus warns his disciples, predicting that Jerusalem and its temple will be destroyed within a generation, and his disciples will be persecuted just like him, until he returns one day to bring God's kingdom fully over the world. And it all leads up to the final night. Jesus has his last Passover meal with the disciples, a symbolic meal that told the story of Israel's liberation from slavery through the death of the Passover lamb. And Jesus takes these symbols and he gives them new meaning. They point to the liberation from sin and death that will happen through the death of the suffering servant Messiah. From here, the story rushes forward to Jesus' arrest, his trial before Israel's priests and the Roman governor Pilate, all resulting in Jesus' crucifixion. And it culminates in a key scene that matches the important scenes from Acts 1 and 2, except this time it's darkness that descends, not a cloud. And instead of the divine voice from heaven, it's Jesus' voice crying out before he dies. And then most surprising is that it's a Roman soldier who sees Jesus die, who grasps and then announces who Jesus is. This man was the Son of God. He's the first person in the story to recognize the story's shocking claim about Jesus' identity, that it's the crucified Son of God who's the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who died for his friends and for his enemies. 
After this, Jesus' body is placed in a tomb, and on the first day of the new week, two women from his disciples come to the tomb, and they discover that the tomb is empty, the stones rolled away, and an angelic man informs them that Jesus isn't here, that he's risen from the dead. And so he orders them to go and tell this good news to the other disciples that Jesus is alive, that he'll meet them back up in Galilee. And the women, they're freaked out. Mark says that they fled from the tomb in terror, telling no one, for they were afraid. And that's how the book ends, with Jesus' disciples showing the same kind of fear and confusion that concluded Acts 2 and 1. Now, if you look in your Bible, you'll see that the Gospel of Mark has more to its ending, where Jesus appears, he speaks to his disciples, but there's also a note there telling you that that ending is not part of the original book, that it's only found in later, less reliable manuscripts. Now, it's possible that the original ending got lost, or that Mark actually never finished writing his account, but it's more likely that this abrupt ending is intentional to make a point. The entire story has focused on the shocking claim that puzzled Jesus' disciples from beginning to end, that it's the suffering, crucified, and risen Jesus who's the Messiah, the Son of God. That God's love and upside-down kingdom were revealed as Jesus died for the sins of the world. And so this story ends without closure, and it forces you, the reader, to grapple with this very strange and scandalous claim about Jesus. And are you going to run away like the women? Or are you going to recognize Jesus as your king and go and tell the good news? And only you can answer that question. And that's what the Gospel of Mark is all about. It's like drinking from a fire hose for a bit there, isn't it? Hopefully, as you were watching that, it brought up some memories from previous sermons, um, and you were recalling some of our journey as we went through the book. Um, today, though, we're going to talk about that, that little asterisk at the end of Mark. I don't know what translation you guys personally read. Uh, I preach typically out of the NIV, sometimes the ESV or the NASB, um, but most of the commentaries for the book of Mark don't even bother discussing verses 9 through 20. But most translations at least put them there with an asterisk or brackets. Um, mine has a asterisk and it says, The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. So today we're going we're gonna to read those out. Not to exegete and study all those and make some claim that, hey, my Bible says this, but I know that these are like, we're going to study them because this isn't the only place in the Bible that it has this stuff. And I believe that we can learn a couple things by acknowledging those brackets, that little asterisk, and then looking at other places that we can see this in the scripture. And I believe God's going to encourage us through that. So first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to read those verses, Mark 16, 9 through 20. And then we are going to talk about it. So again, starting in verse 9 of chapter 16. It says, When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appears in a different form of two of them while they were Formed two two of them while they were walking in the country. 
These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they'll drive out demons, they'll speak in new tongues, they'll pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. God, thank you for your word. I thank you for this whole piece of work that is the word of God. I thank you that you perfectly communicate your heart and your will for your people through it. Uh, would you give us ears to hear and a heart to understand what you have for us today? In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so when, when I look at this, something that, that I feel compelled to bring up to us this morning is <clears throat> this should give us confidence, like more confidence in the Bible being the living word of God, in the Bible being like a solid piece of Holy Spirit-inspired literature. Because what happens here, and there's a whole, you could teach a whole class on like the science and history of how the Bible, how they came up with it, how many thousands of manuscripts in the original languages that we have and can read that, that all corroborate for what the scriptures Say, but at the end of the day, there were scholars somewhere between the third and fourth century that were unsettled because they felt like the video said that it was just left hanging, that the, the gospel of Mark was left hanging and there was no closure and there was no tension. And they took it upon themselves to say clearly there, there had to be something else that was lost, and so they wanted to add to it. Um, now, different translations of the Bible different publishers. They have done different things with it. But at the end of the day, instead of saying, yeah, it would be nice to have some closure, and I'm sure Mark would have said this, the Bible just says, hey, here's some stuff that some people wrote as a potential ending, but it's not in the reliable transcripts. And I read that, and I say, praise God for the integrity of the word. Praise God not only for the Holy Spirit's work in writing and inspiring the Bible, but praise God for his work in preserving it over hundreds of years. And it may be a weird way to look at it. He's like, well, they still put it in there. Yeah, but most of that stuff, notice I said most, most of that stuff is seen in other places. And so there could be an argument made that, well, as people were going through this translation, they saw that this happened here and this happened here, and they just kind of put it in there, trying to fill in some gaps or whatever. But aside from the whole, like, drinking poison, handling snakes thing, we see this stuff happening in other books and other gospels. We see that this is not just text that is included with an asterisk. And so I want to point out some of those things, because as we look at this, as somebody who is reading the word of God, not just to try to gain knowledge, but to see how do I apply that in my own life, as a student of the way of Jesus, we should read this and say, okay, this is not in the earliest manuscripts. So let's cross-reference and see what about this is actually the heart of God. What about this do I need to pay attention to and put into practice in my life? Amen? Amen. 
So we don't just throw out the baby with the bathwater and say, oh, that's in italics, or that's bracketed, or that has an asterisk. So all of that is garbage. We look at it and we say, okay, this is questionable in the whole integrity and preservation of Scripture thing. So let's see where else in the Bible, because we have this entire work of the Word of God, where else do we see, if any, of these things? And then we take those to heart, and we do something about it in walking out our lives. And one of the places that we see similar text is in Acts 1, verses 4 through 8. It says this, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the days or the times the Father set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And here's the part, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's that correlation that Jesus is giving to his people of going to all the nations and testifying to his message, sharing the gospel to the ends of the earth. So we see it there. There's no asterisks on that text. There's no bracket. That is solid in the manuscripts, the most reputable ones that we have. So we still see that thread there. And then in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, and at least once every month we touch on this because this is important. But it says this, 28 verse 16, Matthew. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age." I could go on in Luke and John and talk about the resurrected Jesus and what he teaches through those gospels, but that's not my goal here today. My goal here today is to help us understand that the gospel message, the message of the kingdom of heaven colliding, intersecting with earth, the message of what Jesus came to do, conquering sin, death, and Satan, was not just for knowledge's sake, and then it ends, and oh, I'm glad to know that. That's not how this story is supposed to end with a, oh, I understand, cool, I'm great, that does something for me, that secures my place in eternity. And for as much as it is, as it is meant to give us that assurance, give us that security in what Jesus did for us, there is a now what to the gospel. There is a now what. It doesn't say, gosh, that's amazing news, now I can sleep well at night. The gospel compels us to ask the question, now what? Jesus did this for me, now what? What do I do with this good news? And we see in other places in the Bible, not just in these bracketed verses, that he says you are going to go to everybody and share, spread this good news. This good news brings transformation, not just in you, but through you. The gospel compels us to a now what moment. What do we do with this? And I want to talk about that here today. 
As much as the gospel of Mark ends with this confusion and these women are scared after they encounter this angel in the empty tomb, as much as of course there is more story to be told after that that we may not get in Mark, there is more to it. It's discussed in the other gospels in the book of Acts and we have to do something about this. We have to do something about this. We are given a mission as Jesus ascends into heaven. After he does his work here, completes it, and he's going back to be at the right hand of the Father, he gives us a mission. And that mission is to make disciples. To make disciples. This is for everybody who would believe in him. All who would put their faith in him, their trust in him, we all have a mission. It's called the Great Commission. Because he commissions each of us into this. But unfortunately, too many in the church receive this as a great suggestion instead of a great commission. Or they receive this as like, well, I don't have the spiritual gift of engaging in that mission. Or that's not my calling. That's not my gifting. But family, this is not the great suggestion. This is the great commission that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus has been adopted into his family, is now a part of this family business, and we have a responsibility and an honor to walk out our life in obedience to this call. Amen? So, what does that look like? Our text in Matthew helps us to break down this great commission. And it first breaks it down with like a why, why is this our mission? Why is this great commission applicable to us? And Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Not, hey, authority over this thing or authority over this part of your life or authority in this region, authority in Jerusalem, authority in Eugene. Like he says, all authority, <laughs> all like in caps, all Authority has been given to me. The, the highest authority has given us authority to carry out this mission on earth. We're not trespassing. We're not overstepping our bounds. We're not out of line. We're not operating outside of what we've been called to do. All authority in heaven and earth was given to the Messiah, and he commissioned us into this. He commissioned us into this. Into what? into going and making disciples. Going and making disciples. As we go about our day-to-day -day lives, we go with a renewed sense of purpose because of what Jesus did for us. When you experience the transformative power of his gift of grace in your life, you walk around with a renewed sense of purpose to help others find and follow Jesus. Your purpose, your mission is to help others find and follow Jesus. We don't wait for them to come to us. We seek them out because that's what Jesus did as he was here on earth. He sought people out. He called them to follow him. He taught them what it looks like to obey him and to be disciples and see kingdom of the heaven established on earth. So the ultimate authority has commissioned us into this mission to go and make disciples. To go and make disciples of who? All nations. All nations. Everybody. All people. 
We don't have a mission to go make disciples of people that look like you, speak like you, think like you, vote like you, make the same kind of money you do, work in the job that you do. We have been called to make disciples of everybody. And sometimes God's going to call you to a person or a people group that maybe is a little uncomfortable for you, that might challenge you, that might be a little more abrasive than you, that might be a little more, a little too soft for you. And he's going to work in you and work things out and purify you through that very call to show and give life and hope into that person on his behalf. Too many times we walk out this great commission, we're like, I'm going to go find some people that like the things I like that think the way I think and it's just gonna be smooth going and it's gonna be really nice and I get to make some friends through this thing. But what we need to realize as the church is that God has a heart for all people and all people don't think like all of us. They don't think about the same things of this world the way we do, but God still loves them, cares about them and is gonna use you to connect with them. My prayer is that as we walk out community in this room, we get to walk out some of those relationships in here too as practice. I guarantee you, this room, when it comes to the ballot box, is probably 50-50. I guarantee you that there's numerous different occupations, lifestyles, ways that you were raised, country folk, city folk, like all over the nation. Like we have so many different life experiences and things that on paper would seem not to jive, that would seem not to say, you are family. But because of the blood of Jesus covers all that, we come together and we are family, amen? And we practice that. We walk it out in here so that we can be lights in how that is to be walked out out there. We practice it here so that those that need to see what healthy relationship in the midst of tension looks like get to see it through us because we walk it out all week, every week in the context of this family. We practice it. We walk it out. Who do we make disciples of? Everybody. All people. All nations. How do we make disciples of them? What does that look like? Baptizing them and teaching them to obey. Teaching them to obey what Jesus taught, the things that he instructed, the heart that was imparted into his people. Water baptizing them. Seeing them baptized in the Holy Spirit, filled with his power, not just their own might. These are key elements of the discipleship process. And we are to teach them to observe and obey the teachings of Jesus, not just so that they can take it in his knowledge, but so that they can apply them in their own lives. And how many of you know it's really hard to teach someone to apply something in their life that you're not applying in your own, amen? You can't do it. I can't teach Doc how to shoe a horse. I can't teach Lindsay how to run a marathon. Heck no. I can't teach Pete how to do Navy stuff. I can't teach Chris how to farm grass seed. Okay, I could go on. I don't have anything to offer any of you except faithfulness to this word of God and sharing his heart with you each week. And I'll be your friend and help you walk through the good times and the bad together. But at the end of the day, you have to practice following Jesus. You have to practice obeying and observing his word and walking that out if you are going to help others do the same. So discipleship isn't just about, hey, you need to do this. I read this, you need to do this. Discipleship is, hey... I'm gonna humble myself before the obedience of the Lord, walking out his word, his way of life faithfully so that I can do the same with you. It starts with us. We walk it out. We get to help others do the same.
helping people put this into practice, not just learn it in their heads. And I believe that our region of the United States, unlike many other regions in the United States, struggles with this because this is a very heady part of the world, yeah? Would you guys agree? Like, intellect is an idol here. Intellect and knowledge can be a god of its own. And that doesn't mean that knowledge isn't amazing and that we shouldn't read and we shouldn't learn. But what do we learn for? So that we can become prideful about that knowledge or so that we can walk it out, so we can apply it, so we can practice it, so that we can see the Holy Spirit partner with that and do something in our world. Pursue knowledge. Learn. Yes. But once you have that, now what? So we can walk it out, so we can make disciples. Now I look at this, and there's, I'll be honest, most of the days of my life, I want to say, I'll get to that tomorrow. (laughs) With this whole making disciples, being in relationship with tough people, like helping people to obey and obeying for myself, right? Like, ah, that's really hard. (laughs) That's that's a lot. That can be overwhelming. That can actually make me anxious just thinking about the pressure that you could receive that mission as. But then Jesus ends this and says, remember, I'm with you always. I'm with you always. He promises to be with us as we faithfully go and make disciples. God is with us. God is in us. And God works through us. And we need to remember that. This isn't just about us mustering up enough might to go forward and do this on our own. This is about God with us, God in us, and God through us. And within these few verses, we see tremendous clarity on the motivation and the mission and the method in making disciples. See, we can try to make things really complicated, can't we? And like, okay, what's the philosophy? What's the methods? What's the step-by-step? How am I going to do this? What process? And processes and stuff is great, Trust me, like Casey and I and other leaders, we'd spend a lot of time talking about processes to help make things more efficient. But at the end of the day, you make a choice to follow Jesus with everything you are. You live out a lifestyle that obeys his way. You help others do the same. You see people baptized in water and in the Holy Spirit, and you trust that ultimately he is with you always as you go on this mission. Don't overcomplicate it. Faithfulness, obedience, faithfulness, obedience. Slipping plenty of repentance in there, but that's a whole other sermon series. Faithfulness, obedience, faithfulness to the word, faithfulness to the way of Jesus, faithfulness to the family mission that he gave us as he ascended into the heavens. My prayer is that God would look down on his church and see a group of people that are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be faithful to his word and his way. Can we be faithful to his word and his way? And the unfortunate answer is that apart from him, no, (laughs) we can do our best. But with him living in us, working through us, guiding us with his empowerment, we can live out everything that he's called us to live. This glorious, magnificent gospel message was not meant to stop at the information stage. It wasn't meant to end there. It has always and will always meant to be lived out and applied and put into practice. Worship team, you can come back up. We receive this good news 
so that we can share this good news. We don't receive it, like I said at the beginning, just to give us comfort, just to give us our own personal security. We receive it to share it. We're transformed by this message so that we can bring transformation to this world on behalf of Jesus. That's our mission. It's our mission. And as much as we can read this and we can state theologically that yes, this is a mission for all people who put their faith in Jesus, for all who are a part of his family, at the end of the day, we still have to ask ourselves the mission impossible question. (laughs) This is your mission should you choose to accept it. Should you choose to accept it? Because each day we have to get up and make a choice to be faithful to his word and his way. And I believe as we do that, we get to shine bright in the darkest places. We get to bring hope where hopelessness abounds. We get to extend grace where grace is such a foreign concept. We get to extend love in compassion in a cynical and skeptical world. Amen. You see where I'm going with this? We get to shift culture because Jesus has shifted our heart. That's what we get to do. And like I mentioned, this just doesn't happen by waiting for folks to come to you. At some point, you're going to have to step up. We're going to have to step up and have the courage to have a conversation to extend an invitation. But here's my prayer for us, family, that we would experience, especially in these next couple months, as things are shifting. I believe things are shifting spiritually, they're shifting physically, and I'm asking that you would allow your invitation to bring transformation in the life of somebody. As you invite them into community, into this gospel truth, into the knowledge of who Jesus is, not just for us, but for everybody, for all people, that that invitation into something more would usher in transformation in their lives. Would you allow your invitation to do that? Would you step out and be bold and courageous and invite somebody into this amazing news? We can't keep it to ourselves. It's too good of news. It has too much eternal too many eternal implications for us to just hold it in, to worry about getting it all perfect. If I could tell you guys, if I had a count for how many times I have seen imperfect people, deliveries, conversations used by the Holy Spirit to do radical work in people's lives. Like, I, 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 I can't count them. I can't count them. How many times I've stepped off the pulpit and been like, man, I wish I had a mulligan for that one, right? And somebody comes up, pastor, you wouldn't believe what God spoke to me, what he did to me, that you wouldn't believe what he did to this person I brought. Or I have this conversation with somebody, I'm like, man, I just felt so like, like I was just lost in that. And Oh my gosh, the Holy Spirit did so much in that. And I appreciate that response the best. The Holy Spirit did something in that because they know, hey, pastor, you weren't on your game, but the Holy Spirit used it. put all the pressure on yourself. Our part is the obedience, taking that step, and then we see what God will do with it through his Holy Spirit. Amen? That's his job. Faithfulness and obedience, that's ours. Walk it out. Help others do the same and see what he might do as you engage people.
out of a place of love and hope in what he's done. So I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna have communion. So as I pray to close the message, um, there will be cups on your seat, under your seat, on your table. Um, You can go ahead and grab those. But God, thank you so much for your word. Father, I thank you that you've given us a mission. I thank you that we don't have to sit and wonder now what. (laughs) As we receive this good news of your kingdom being established on earth as it is in heaven, the now what is clear. Let's go make disciples of all people, teaching them to obey, be baptized, and that you're going to be with us in all of that. We thank you for that truth. We pray that you would use that in a mighty way to transform our lives and to allow us to be a part of the transformation story of others. So we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.